Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Kreski. I'm the editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and a Film Comment contributor. And uh, we're up here for our third Toronto International Film Festival podcast on the sixth day of the festival. Is that true? Yeah. Um, and I have some very special guests as always. So if you could please go around the room and introduce yourselves. I'm Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image, and I'm a Film Comment columnist. Aliza Ma, um, head of programming at Metrograph and also sometimes contributor to Film Comment. I'm Adam Naiman, Torontonian. I write for The Ringer and Cinemascope, and I have a new book out today on the Coen brothers. And it's also very exciting because we are in the TIFF Long Take studio today, so we're feeling very professional. It's very exciting. And I actually heard a rumor that Stephen Yoon, the cover boy of our September-October issue of Film Comment, was in this very room earlier this week. So it's very illustrious. Um, We all love him. So we've seen a lot of movies, and some of us are getting tired of seeing movies. But some of us love movies so much that they never get tired of movies. I think some of those people might be in this room. Um, So one we're going to start with today, there's a lot of head shaking. The one we're going to start with today is something that we've actually all seen, which is a rarity when you get four people in the same room. And that is Olivier Asayas's nonfiction Eric, oh, <laughs> why don't you start this uh, extremely complicated and actually rather fun movie? Uh, well, I, I don't want to uh, derail us to start, but I think I saw that film the longest ago of the group. So if anybody wants to dive in in terms of plot synopsis, that would be great. I know how what I want to say about the film, but synopsis-wise, I actually don't feel sharpest. I, mean, I don't think we need to go too much into the synopsis. I was, I was sitting next to Eric, but I remember the film fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's set in the world of publishing, set in the world still kind of a print press publishing, and it opens with a discussion between two characters, one of whom uh, is a, a writer who wants the, the other to publish his book, and there's a sense of some kind of rivalry, but also friendship between them, and it opens up into sort of a portrait of the larger community that these two men occupy, their spouses, their relationships, their their jobs, and central to all of their minds at all times are the is the question of whether what they do is sort of disappearing, it's being replaced by a digital version, and much discussion about art and culture and technology ensues. And and much discussion of the leopard. The film positions itself oh, yes. as being like a latter-day leopard. Yeah, the, the, the know, central the quote change. that's in the film is that everything must change so that they can stay the same. Um, I, I, I've asked people who are here this year, you know, because we've been here, I mean, so many years in a row with each other. It feels like high school reunions or something. <laughs> and I've been asking people what are the films this year that they think they will be um, thinking about, you know, a few years down the line because, you know, every year, depending on what the films are, you know, the, the scales kind of shift to accommodate whatever output there is. And this is a film I genuinely believe I will be thinking about for a long, long time to come um, because it, it deals with ideas that uh, I've per- personally been grappling with for a long, long time. Um you know, he unpacks these um, notions of, you know, analog versus digital, 
and what it means to be, um, what the notion of authenticity really means in a world that is moving so quickly that we do not have an analog to sort of be able to forecast where we will be in the next year. And there's sort of this very rapid Romarian dialogue. And I understand that, like, people may be put off by that because he is talking about social media in a very sort of self-aware way. But I think it is so well calibrated and um, it is self-knowing in a way that it is not annoying and I, I, I really think that is a sincere work of art that really talks about the state of art in our time right now. Well, and you've got, you know, wall-to-wall conversations about Twitter, about blogging, about ebooks, um, the sort of conversations that, you know, if you were to take it on its surface, you would say, well, this is going to date this film instantly. Right. Right. But of course, he knows very well that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like you're, you're beginning by saying it's a film that you think you'll be talking about five years from now. I think that's absolutely true because what we see as, you know, basically putting headlines of, you know, what we're all grappling with right now into a film, five years from now, those aren't going to be headlines. Five years from now, it's going to be, oh, we were so naive or we thought we knew what we were talking about and we don't. And that's built into the way that he's designed the film too, which is that it's tempting in the first act or so or the first half hour of the film to think that these characters are mouthpieces for something that he's thinking about or that maybe a conversation that he's having with specific people. But the way that that gets challenged, I don't want to give things away. This is not a plot thing. But the characters tend to be wildly inconsistent about their own argument making. So the people that are making a certain argument in the first part of the film an hour later are making a completely different argument with different people, right. which I think is a way of kind of negating that whole notion that this is just some artist's attempt to um, have characters argue over the same things that they're thinking about and arguing at home because it's he's objectifying those arguments more mm-hmm. than he's having them through the film. For me, I think the film – the film really wore me out. I think it wears itself out. I kept thinking of all the SAS films that I love and admire that it evoked, which is not like I'm not trying to use his previous work as a club against this one. He's a filmmaker I revere very much. Um, but I thought that that multi-voice cacophonous thing in Irma Vep, the speed and spontaneity of that is kind of present here, but I like it more in the other film. I thought that some of the considerations of how things – the, the wonderful leopard quote that Elisa used about changing and staying the same was better articulated in summer hours. I even thought some of the pop culture textures were even sharper in something like Clouds of Sils Maria. I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of this felt familiar and there's a kind of uh, a safety and a tastefulness and a preciousness to it that really kind of bugged me. It's not my response to the movie and this might not be a fair one, but I overheard some God forbid, members of the paying public who are not at a press screening seeing the film and what they were saying about the film was, you know, that's lovely, that's cute, that's precious, that's a nice movie that I can watch. I'm not making that up as an anecdote. I overheard it in the light box while people were talking. And it sort of just reminded me of why I was frustrated while while watching it. He's a brilliant guy. It's a smart script. The acting's kind of faultless. Some of it is funny. You mentioned The Leopard as one movie reference. I love the white ribbon running joke in the movie, oh, which, the I, white ribbon which, I, which I won't spoil, but like... That's a very amusing thing. But even that 
I think eventually wears out its welcome, the self-reflexivity of it. There's a line at one point where someone says there's only 10 people in the room that are going to get this joke. And listening to the chuckling in the press screening room as everyone got the jokes exactly on the level as they're intended for the well-referenced people that he's speaking to, I just felt a little bored. It's funny. I I, I just came out of the film, so uh, I just walked out of it better not be a half hour ago, so I haven't really processed my thoughts. But I also saw it with a paying audience. It was at the Elegant Theaters. It was huge, um, you know, sold-out crowd. He was very charming in his intro. They loved him. But the audience actually, they ate it up. But not necessarily, I think, or I could tell in the way that you perhaps distrust, if I'm understanding you um, correctly. I felt like, um, yeah, like let's say Asayas is making like one for them. I'm using air quotes, you know, one for him, one for them. If this is a one for them movie for Asayas, then I'm all for it. <laughs> this is a, it's a, it's, you know, when I say, when you say sophisticated, that tends to mean something kind of bourgeois and, and irritating like you're saying. But for, for Asayas, I think it's, 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 a, it's true intellectual sophistication. He's asking questions. And um, he also manages to wrap all these questions up in a fairly engaging narrative of adultery and, you know, intertwining couples. And you get really involved in the characters as much, I think, I think, and I could tell the audience did, as you do in the kind of curly cues of conversation. I like that that it's not what I expected. And I, I, I was hoping it would be the Irma Vep of the publishing world. That it would be a little more self-reflexive, a little more playful. Maybe it would have a heist scene. I don't know, a diamond heist. Um, but it's, it's a much more straightforward, um, character-driven, milieu-specific film that I thought just kind of worked on both levels. There is a bit of a high scene, but it's a sort of meta high scene. <laughs> I mean, oh, that's true. The, the the TV drama within the, the right, drama of the film. Uh, Juliette Binoche's character is a TV actress, and um, the film kind of talks a little bit about what it means, you know, in this world um, where we are at a festival uh, where there's now a TV program sure. in the film festival. All these worlds are being collapsed into each other. And I think this is maybe this is the cue for me that it's not one for them, but one for him. That, you know, he is working through what it means to be a filmmaker in the world right now as somebody who is so uh, insanely tapped into the currents of every platform of communication and representation. And um, I think that, you know, in the subtext of what he is talking about with regards to publishing, he's also referring to uh, cinema, um, somebody who cares a lot about uh, film history. Um, I think, yeah, there, there's an analog, a direct analog to be made between the world of publishing and cinema. Oh yeah, that's what's what's. I mean, it's. I feel like in some ways, it's it's incredibly pleasing in the sense because he knows what he's talking about in the publishing world. He knows what he's talking about in terms of the internet, um, uh, just like in other films, he knew what he was talking about in the music world. Um, and so he gets to make a film that absolutely works on the level it's operating, while also being entirely about cinema. I feel like everything in here is also about cinema, but there's no. He's not high. Like it, it works. Like it just works on the level already. It doesn't have to be. Well, that doesn't really matter. It's really about cinema. Well, it's both. Right, you know. and and that you know does bleed into the world of relationships. Sure. Interpersonal relationships, romantic relationships, and it, it it encompasses this as well. You know, when you look at all the couples that are getting together and all of the drama that kind of 
you know, crosses over between couples. And but ultimately, I think what's so sweet about it is there are almost these like Hong Sang Su touches. I'm thinking of the Q&A scenes um, after not film festival screenings, but rather um, book signings after Vincent McCann's character does his awkward Q&As. But the camera does pan back to the audience and, you know, you think it's going to be a lot of people in the audience, but it's actually just very few awkward people asking well, questions. That's a book signing audience. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to say one, one of the things that's kind of built into the design of the film, which is why I think makes it sort of charming or, and, and, um, and accessibly um, provocative, is that these are unanswerable questions, yeah. right? It's a movie about right. unanswerable questions yes. about the state of the industry. So therefore, there's no way that this movie is going to spoon feed you something and you're not supposed to leave thinking one thing or the other. And I like that. And I think there's a lot of interesting discourse in the film because of that. Which is why, and again, I'm betraying only my preference. I mean, the arguments you guys make for the film are persuasive. You're persuasive people and it's not a dislikable film. But when you say unanswerable questions, I think back and again, with directors who we really like and we're familiar with the body of work, you can't help but look around the career. A film like Demon Lover is dealing with some of the same questions mm-hmm. 15 years ago. They're unanswerable questions and it doesn't pretend to find a satisfying form. In fact, Demon Demon Lovers, phenomenally unsatisfying. It's one of my favorite SAS films because it's got all of his intelligence and his insight and his craft and it's also incredibly scary because I think he made it and very much about cinema and the transition to digital and the way that old values and virtues and literacy are bleeding into something else. That's an old movie now. But it not only remains unanswerable when you rewatch it, which you did last year, it's not safely consumable. And there's something about the packaging here that is precise and skillful and impeccable. Like the guy I don't think is capable of making a bad movie in the way we kind of think about bad movies. But the way that it goes down easy plus the fact that it ultimately doesn't say anything because it cancels itself out and where Eric saw a kind of a an interesting inconsistency in the characters, that's true. They do reverse positions. But in terms of how they sound, it's a monotone. It's a 12-track monotone to me. Every character in the film sounds the same even when they're articulating competing positions. That might not be objectively true. Other people who watch the film might see the nuances of the performance and the delivery of the dialogue. I may be wrong. But for me, they all kind of sound the same. And it plays to me like a super smart guy cornering his own arguments for two hours, which to me just got exhausting. Um, and when you guys mentioned Romare and you mentioned Hong Sang Soo, I'm also betraying my prejudices here, but I thought a little bit of Woody Allen. And I mean that not super as a compliment when it comes to the rondelay of adultery stuff, which is to me so mechanical, so mechanical. And every time they reveal who's actually, you know, doing what with who, I'm like, it's yep. It's super French. I'm like, I'm like, yep, that's coming. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, Woody Allen was in, in fact, as I was watching it, one of the first things I thought yeah. of, I was like, oh, he's making a Woody Allen film. This yeah. is interesting. Um, I mean, because it is a blatant comedy. I think it's the only straight up comedy he's ever made. I mean, it's very funny. There are laugh lines. But I also thought of, not to just, but, you know, this is, this is, I'll say, us. It, it all exists in the mix. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, I thought of Renoir and Rules of the Game, too, because I feel like what Lisa was talking about, the way that the anxiety over these formats and the career and, 
and everyone's art um, and careers are wrapped up in their relationships feels very much like a Renoir film in that way. Like there's a there's an end, there's an end of an era here, but we don't quite know totally. what that ending is, and when there's a beginning, and we don't know if that's even begun. Feels very much like a film like that, where here we're going to have a round delay of people's relationships bed hopping while the world is changing around them, and that's part of what leads to them to be together and also what leads them to be apart. And uh, I, I don't, so I understand what you're saying in terms of its form being not nearly as self-discovering as something as Dream Lover is, but I think it's very consciously working within a certain, you know, light register, comedic register, while, you know, what's underneath that surface is just, just deep, deep anxiety. And also, like, it's also self-consciously bourgeois, um, like, like aggressively bourgeois, and, and <clears throat> while also being self-hating every step of the way about that. SAS is one of the most galaxy-brained people working in cinema today. You know, um, just the ability to switch from, you know, social media to this, like, grand historical scope to um, something that's so socially entrenched uh, in in a single film is super impressive. And, um, you know, there's one character in the film which I have first thought was a little bit strange. You know, the the woman who gets hired as the digital, what's her title? Digital integrator? Transition. Transitioner. Transition. Which is a scary word in this context because right. that's the change, right? Right, yeah. And yeah. she's the sexy, um, almost like manga character who speaks <laughs> in cliches of the internets. She's ambisexual, of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. And it's so funny because, you know, it's his. I, I feel like it's almost another film that he's inserted into the scope of this film. But, but ultimately, what strikes me as being so moving about this film is all the uh, punctuations of everybody sitting around and having dinner together at, at each other's homes and cooking for each other, having wine together, and that's. You know, that's a evergreen thing. You know, nobody will ever tire of this, no matter, I don't know, where we are in the world. Um, no, 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 no matter how much we criticize That's Asayas, you know, sort of answering his own questions that mm-hmm. can't be answered. Mm-hmm. Right. No matter how much we say, you know, we we hate seeing reflections of ourselves in movies, we actually don't hate seeing reflections of ourselves in movies. Right. Um, and th- I think there is, I think you were getting at this well, Eric, but for, for a movie that does seem to go down so easily, I think there is a lot of unease about it. It's a movie about unease and um, mm-hmm. it's an interesting tension. Um, the but unease is off screen for the most part. Yeah. It's simmering everyone mm-hmm. because everyone's unsure about their own futures, whether it's their relationships, whether it's their profession, whether it's just the industry, whatever industry that may be. There are mm-hmm. various industries that are touched upon in the film. Um, it's it's just a, there's a lot of rupture going on. But just to, um, just to go back to Lisa saying there's a film we're going to talk about in the future, I think that's part of why it's going to last is that unease. Like we're going to be seeing unease in a way that maybe we're seeing topicality now, but the unease is what's going to last. It reminds me of like um, Before Sunrise a film that was so of the moment and I couldn't handle it for being of the moment at that time. And now I see it and it makes me incredibly sad and makes me feel great things for these people who had no idea what the world was going to become. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's going to happen to this film too. That that, that does remind me of um, a quote from our dear friend Nick Pinkerton who once said about Before Sunrise, um, I thought that I hated that movie, then I realized I hated myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> I think that was a public 
tweet. So it's not <laughs> like it's it's a private thing. Yeah. Um, but to transition now um, to something else, and I think we should go from something that may maybe it seems benign or it's it's it, or audience pleasing to something that I think has no interest in making the audience feel comfortable, mm-hmm. which is Alex Ross Perry's beautifully titled Her Smell, um, a title that I really hated till I saw the movie and then I hated it even more. <laughs> um, but I like the film. So maybe, Eric, you can start oh. describing this film. Uh, well, briefly, because there's only so much that, I mean, in some ways it it, it, be, it begins from archetypal ideas, you know? Um, and so basically you've got, um, it's a five-act film, like very much acts around the same length, maybe even it Almost as almost maybe even precisely the same length. I'm actually not entirely sure, but it's five uh, different parts, two hours, fifteen minutes long, chronological, uh, working through a, a girl group trio, um, rock, punk, a little bit undetermined quite where it fits in in terms of genre. Um, '90s band. I'm a, I, I'm 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 getting. There's not not specific about the years, but basically a 90s girl group trio. Um, Elizabeth Moss is the lead of the band, and she is on a kind of downward spiral over the course of several of these acts. And, you know, there's another sort of turns beyond the downward spiral. It's not just a downward spiral. But that's kind of the idea. That's the idea. Like, like there's an idea behind it that is something you've heard before, which is rock musicians, one musician's on a on, on downward spiral, also a compelling, a bit of an asshole, and the other two members of the band are sort of like suffering, you know, adjacent figures to to this figure. And uh, and it's just filled with long scenes um, of four discrete moments in, in the lives of these characters. And did you want to kind of go into a little bit how you've, how you've, effective you've found the film? I mean, I think we should also say that other Alex Russ Perry movies might not quite prepare the viewer for this one. Mm-hmm. I, though I'm sure you could tease out certain connections between the films. Yeah. I think this is something new and different for him. It's a very experiential film. It's a high, it's a highly constructed sound design, mm-hmm. which is kind of there to, um, I would say, set the audience really off its, yeah. uh, like, to destabilize yeah. the audience. Yeah. Um, and it has very, very, like, it's kind of, it has like a Cassavetes opening night quality, of course, because the, 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 the main actress is having this attenuated breakdown. But at the same time, it doesn't quite move or feel like a Cassavetes film, like maybe it's making gestures to it. It kind of, it, it's, it's more like, kind of like Queen of Earth in a way, which is Alex Ross Perry's previous breakdown film. Um, also starring Elizabeth Moss. With, yeah. Also starring Elizabeth Moss. This, they all kind of gesture at horror their music film. It's also a music film. Um, the one thing I can say about it is that um, it. I would say for the first hour and fifteen, perhaps I don't know exactly when it transitions. It, it's it's purposely monotonous. Sure. And I sure. can imagine there will. It's the kind of film there will be a lot of walkouts sure. on. Sure. Um, if people can stick with it until the moment that it transitions to a, a kind of a more, I don't want to say traditional narrative, but it has an arc and you can't really see the arc un, until you get past that first section. Right. But it really is so completely um, in the character's head and it gets you in this backstage claustrophobic headspace that um, it almost becomes unbearable. And yeah. she maintains this high level of anxiety and uh, you know being strung out. Yeah. Um, throughout this whole thing. So it's a portrait of addiction. It's a portrait of obsession. It's a really interesting portrait of all the satellite characters around her who either enable or try to help. And I think it all builds to what was an incredibly effective and moving final 
act. I, I didn't know what to expect at any point. Is this just going to be a story of somebody just hitting rock bottom? Mm-hmm. Or is this going to be about redemption? Or is it just going to be a tease of redemption? It kind of does all those things. And it also becomes a suspense narrative about the possibility of redemption. I think the last, people should stick with it because I think the last act is actually quite extraordinary. And I'm, I actually like, I quite like the fourth act as well. Um, I've heard a little bit of um, criticism out there already about people disagreeing with that, but I actually think that works um, less so for you. No, I know. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I know. I'm actually surprised. I did. I did. I hadn't heard anything about this film, and I didn't know that there was any response at all. So I don't know why the fourth act. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. You have to stick it through. You have to make it to that turn to Act Four because it, 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 it's crucial and it, what defines the film. The, the film works or not based on you actually getting through Act Four and Five. And I think that I'm with you. I find Act Four and Five quite moving, and yeah. I mean, I. It is not an easy film to watch. It's not an easy film to love, but I feel like that's actually quite – that is maybe the most consistent thing with Alex Ross Perry's films. They're not films that are looking for you to like them. In fact, that in, there are ways in which they aggressively keep you away, almost daring you to come toward it, daring you to care when characters are not caring people. And I think that this – film gets somewhere that the previous films don't really in the sense that there is a sense of redemption. There is a sense of growth and there is a sense of like, I don't want to, there, there are certain lines towards the end of the film that characters uh, talk about their relationships with one another and how there's never a moment where anybody's redeemed to the point of their behavior is forgiven or that they're any, any, anything less than intolerable. There's just a nature, an aspect of you've seen people over time and the fact that they still care and love each other is what makes up for that. It's not like, oh, you've changed and you've you stopped being an asshole. Well, they're kind of still an asshole, but I've loved you and I get what you've gone through. And that's where it builds, And which I think is a really a, a, a terrific growth as a writer to, to, to have characters that um, it's not negating – how he's written characters before he's just imagined or worked his way into another layer to relationships. Yeah, I'd say this for, for all the craft that I see in a lot of his films and how much I've admired um, some of them. I would say this kind of pushes things into a new realm where I can I can I can really kind of get on board <laughs> with the Alex Ross Perry project here. I've I've been a little uh, turned off sometimes by the um, kind of like the willful, I don't want to use the word cynicism, but, you know, or the, the antagonism of the films, the, 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 um, um, the, the fact that they always just kind of seem to be about people being awful to each other, and then that's kind of the baseline, and that's right. how it ends. And this right. changes that a bit. And also, Elizabeth Moss is quite brilliant in the film, yeah, and she's always brilliant. I love her. But, uh, but the cast of characters around her are... are um, Sort of uh, are the the characters are brilliantly cast, and um, I'd want to give a special shout out to Agnes Dane, Amazing. who was the star of Terrence Davies' Sunset Song a couple of years back. And I'm watch I watched the entire film trying to figure out who I was looking at, Same and because I'd Same seen here. that film so many times, yeah, I couldn't and figure there was, who it was such a discussion around that film when it came out. How, how much of a good actress is she? Is she just being directed a certain way by Terrence Davies? I cannot believe it's the same person. Yeah. She's unbelievable. Yeah, she's great. Well, I mean, what I was going to say, this is related to what you said in, in describing what the film is doing, is that um, especially in its sound design, it is so thoroughly in the headspace of that lead character. What's, what's the name of the character? Why can't... Uh, Becky something. Becky something. So, which is memorable. I shouldn't... I should have remembered that. But um, that you're so, like, you're so far inside of her head that the sound design is 
almost unendurable at times how kind of murky and throbbing and derailing of the scene in front of you it can be. And successful it is to bring you inside her head, which is not a pleasant place to be, the same time as the film manages to bring in other characters' points of view and experiences, which is not an easy thing to do, which I think then, so the sound design, I think, works aggressively towards a single point of view, whereas the camera work, Sean Price Williams' camera work and the orchestration around that allows you to really get into other people's experiences. Right. And, 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 and so you have an opportunity for all these people who are satellites to a, a black hole of a central character to actually, you can see them. It, it, it's, it, it kind of... Some of the things that I liked about Gus Van Sant's last days are are kind of magnified here, mm. right? All the things that I really loved that the portrait of how the people around a very sick person either help or don't help, and this and this also makes it about sisterhood, and that's very foregrounded, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I thought it was very moving, but we should probably move on because <laughs> we are the only two in the room who saw that film. Well, one thing so I'll far. just say in terms of since we don't have a third voice to to offer. Criticism. The one thing I will say is, and this is consistent to Alex's films, is that I I feel like it misses a little bit. Of, like there's a there's always an element with his films where I'm not quite sure he's a hundred percent knows what he's talking about, um, which shows you how accomplished he is as a writer that he pulls off wildly different films in different milieus. Mm. Um, but that's often what I is going on in the back of my head where I'm like, do you actually know? everything about this moment and these people. Um, and as somebody who, you know, lived through the same era of this music, there's moments where I'm like, I, 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 I would have loved a little bit another sort of level of Paul Thomas Anderson kind of, you know, uh, backstory that we don't have any access to, but is there. Like all that working out exactly when this is happening in time, exactly where this is happening within the music scene. That would have helped, I think, a little bit to, to make this world feel even more mm-hmm. alive. I can see that. He's not, he's not as precise a filmmaker right. or as historically interested, perhaps, as Paul Thomas Anderson. But he, he kind of dives headfirst into things, which yeah. is how this film feels, which is also part of its charm. Aliza, totally. um, what else did you see? I saw A Faithful Man. Did anybody see that? Louis Garrel's A Faithful Man. Looking forward to seeing it, but I haven't. I walked by Louis Garrel on the street, and that was exciting as well. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been, yeah. <laughs> mm. So it's a romantic uh, drama about the relationship between Louis' character and the character of Leticia Casta, who is his IRL partner, uh, also starring Lily Rose Depp, who has... Um, among, Hollywood Dynasty. Exactly. IRL, Hollywood Dynasty. Yeah, I think I think previously starred in Yoga Hosers. <laughs> <laughs> the film that no, that's like nonfiction we'd be talking Highly about for prestigious. years to come. <laughs> I'm really glad there's another Gorel filmmaker in the family now. It seemed sort of inevitable if you kind of think back to everything and... Of course, Louis has been making stuff, but I think this is the first real, real film. And um, it's actually very pleasant. It's very light. Um, It feels almost like a film that I'd seen before, Um, not in a bad way at all. Um, You know, like it it makes me think about like um, the Lincoln – plaza cinemas you know it makes me think about like things that we used to think of as um given sort of givens in in the film um world um in the film going world and um 
And yeah, th- uh, there's certain things in the film that are a little bit surprising in terms of, uh, you know, editing and camera movement. But ultimately, you know, it's a super French um, relationship drama. And it's it's kind of like slipping into a nice warm bath if that's what you guys are into and you like the leads. <laughs> I like nice warm baths. You know, baths. I, li- I, <laughs> I like I like a Letitia Costa performance because, you know, I, I think about her and I think about Taimi Liang's visage. Sure. Yeah. And she's such a striking figure. I wouldn't say it's minor, but I, I do think that it, it's super light and in a good way. <laughs> and it came as um, almost a refreshing tincture during the festival. <laughs> and that'll be at New York Film Festival, too. It is going yes. to the New York Film Festival. So we will all catch up with it then. Speaking of refreshing tinctures, uh, <laughs> Adam Naiman, um, let us know what you thought of the new Xavier Dolan film. Um, it was like slipping into a warm bath. Um, you know, it, there's all kinds of different things we carry with us as critics, and there's the anticipation that you have for filmmakers who you love, and there's the sort of um, anti-anticipation you have for filmmakers who you dislike. But sometimes there's something very sustaining about that and very exciting about that because if you've written about people's work and you and you don't enjoy it and they keep making movies, you just keep getting opportunities to, you know, reinforce your prejudices. And, you know, I, I had that with a couple of movies at this festival, you know, because there's also a Jason Reitman movie. But the Delan is the more interesting. What a year for you. It was a great year for me. But Canadian the, the, cinema. The Delan is in every way the more interesting of the two movies. I mean, all I'd say about The Front Runner is it's, pretty successfully realized as what it is. I think what it is is worthless. But that's the Jason Reitman movie. Right. Like it's, a, it's a worthless, fully realized movie. But the <laughs> Delan film is a very unrealized work. There's been a lot of public – and I profess to have no special knowledge of what happened in the making of this movie. But when Jessica Chastain was announced as being cut out of the film via Instagram, the director's Instagram, it became very evident to people that this was a movie that was something of a troubled production. So watching it, um, you're very aware of like not just the Chastain-sized hole in the narrative, but sort of the question of like what happened to make this film by – and I'm I'm not saying this like through gritted teeth or through my hands or anything. I'm trying to be fair. Like what made this film by a generally confident, accomplished director who for better or worse knows what he's doing, uh, what made it feel su- like such a mess? And it is a mess, which isn't a word that I would usually apply to Delan's work. I think sometimes he bites off more than he can chew or I think sometimes from scene to scene there's weird decisions. But most of the things about this movie feel kind of miscalibrated. And in a strange way, I found that watchable and kind of endearing because some of these scenes are just so odd. There is a sequence – like I don't want to spoil the film and I haven't even said what it's about yet. But I will just say like there is a scene with Michael Gambon in this movie that is like the weirdest scene I've seen in a film at TIFF. And much like Aliza with nonfiction, I will think about it for years to come. I will think about it on my deathbed. (laughs) When I'm dying, (laughs) I will think about what this Michael Gambon scene is doing. What a big day for you. Yeah. Well, I always think about dying, so. But the uh, <laughs> for the for, for the film, I mean, what it's about is it's a this piece of Delan lore, which is that as a nine year old, he wrote Leonardo DiCaprio a fan letter where he's like, "I've seen Titanic a million times. I want to be a filmmaker. I love you," and that's a very Xavier Delan thing. And he expands it into a narrative here about a a, a TV star, the titular uh, John F. Donovan, played by Kit Harington, who begins a pen pal correspondence with this boy, played by Jacob Tremblay. And one of the things that really strains credibility is that the, the, the correspondence starts when the kid is like six and his mom, Natalie Portman, is helping him kind of write the letters. And 
you know, it should be a movie about like why is this older man confiding all this stuff in a small boy and it kind of is but the movie shows nothing of what the kid would be saying to him to make him keep confiding in him. Like that just feels missing, deliberate or not. But they each have their respective troubles which is it's a coming of age and out story for the kid because it's, it's the, the kid has sort of these queer – uh, stirrings and, and feelings and the older character, the John F. Donovan character exists in the media spotlight where he's similarly closeted and it makes no sense that this is such a crisis for him. The, it, it, it's fair enough to set a movie in the present tense and have a character who for whatever reason is struggling with his sexuality. I don't mean that but the movie doesn't make it convincing based on the people around him or the support systems that he has or doesn't have that this would be such a point of agony for him. But the most interesting thing about the film and I've been laughing about it since I saw it is the framing device which is the grown-up version of the child trying to convince this journalist played by Thandie Newton that the story is worth telling. And in that sense, that is Dolan himself. He's not just a surrogate for the little boy who's precocious and wants to be an artist. He's the surrogate for the 20-something now being like, what I am doing has meaning, validate me. Don't call – the, in, the, in, the, in the film, it's referred to as like first world mishaps. And he's like, these are not first world mishaps. They matter. They're universal. They're important. And like the film is about him winning Thandie Newton who's this old school political reporter. She's like covering wars and stuff and she's like, wait a minute. Maybe what you're saying is super fascinating. And it's like Delan is trying to say, no, no, me and what I've done is, is, is important. He always has this subtext in his movies of like, you'll miss me if I'm gone. You'll be sorry if I'm gone. You know, what I have to say is important. I find it irritating but it's also consistent. He's very much a kind of an auteur and I like seeing the places where this is clearly his work and his concerns and his themes and the places where it's just a mess because this is clearly a salvage job and that's nothing that I would say about his previous work. His previous works are realized for better or for worse. It's just a mess. Mm. But I obviously have thoughts on it. It's not boring. And it has the tackiest music cue since the last Xavier Delant film, the licensing budget on this movie. He plays songs in their entirety. So he doesn't just play Rolling in the Deep over the opening credits, which I'm sure he got for free from Adele. He like plays the whole song and he plays like a whole Green Day song and he plays um, – I won't spoil the song at, over the end credits but I already tweeted it and it must have been very expensive. That is an expensive song. I hear there are a lot of songs from the Cruel Intention soundtrack. There are. The way there were in Mommy when he plays all of Colorblind. And if Xavier Delane comes out and says my whole career is basically an homage to the Cruel Intention soundtrack, then like fair play because that's an awesome thing to make a career out of. But I don't think that that's – I mean don't you think he should stop making movies for a while and go live his life? No, no more than any other. No, I, 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 I don't. I want him to keep making movies and I will see every movie he makes. I will never stop. But also what life? Just, I, and I don't say that as a joke. Well, but I mean, what he, life? He, he was, I mean, he, you know, he started as a child actor. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, is, he's mining aspects of life that don't exist within himself at this point. And I think, you know, I, I, I wonder why it is that people respond to this uh, highfalutin stylistic uh, exercise. I think that there's a, with a, absolutely a, nothing behind it. I think that I'm, and I'm, I'm not, you know, particularly. A uh, huge fan of his films, but I mean, I, there is just a certain kind of queer contingent of um, certainly of young people. I'm not really talking about cinephiles, but you know, young maybe let's just say movie watchers <laughs> who are queer who kind of see this um, this, this like aggressive auteur streak as being like this defiant, important voice, and it it kind of 
doesn't matter what the movie is. And that's after a while. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. yeah as I, a, I, I know. But I mean, he every time a, a new film is announced, there's people are just passionate. Yeah. It, it's, it baffles it's, it's, me. It's like teeny bopper. Yeah. As a, as a non-queer, non-French Canadian, <laughs> but I am Canadian, I, you know, I've been in a position to write about him. And I tried when I wrote about him for Scope to talk about what Michael's talking about, which is just like a conceit like, okay, not a filmmaker for me, not a filmmaker for some of my friends. Clearly, he's a filmmaker for someone and I don't find the praise and enthusiasm for his work to necessarily be in bad faith. Like, taste is taste. I think he has bad taste in music, but he likes the music and I think he uses it earnestly. Thank goodness he's not using it ironically. He owns, like, the Green Day mm -hmm. song cues. So I'm trying to sort of figure out if he's not a filmmaker for me, but he's a filmmaker for someone else, where does that place him in Canada? Because the one thing I'll say for him, and I'm coming off nicer about him maybe than people listening are going to expect, the guy goes for it. He really, really goes hard. We have a tendency towards a kind of apologeticness sometimes in Canadian cinema or a recessiveness or an imitativeness. And like he's imitative, but he's imitative in a way that goes big. I appreciate the grandness sometimes of his gestures. And maybe the reason I kind of like obsessively dislike his films is because I think there's something in them that might eventually be something. This movie I feel sympathy towards because it is clearly broken. Like clearly, clearly broken. It's an easy, easy movie to laugh at. And I did. I laughed at it many times over its too long, two-hour running time. But I don't hate it. I'm fascinated by how broken it was. And I can see the Jessica Chastain parts because apparently she's playing some gossip columnist, which would fill in both the context for why he feels so hounded by the media. And it would just give it like another strong acting anchor. And she's just not she, – she's she, – She's the I'll do anything musical numbers of she this is film. The, she is the I'll do anything musical numbers of, of this film. That is a great reference. Um, and just to get off this uh, in a second, but I do I, – I am interested in his films only in so much as that I am a queer cinephile and I really prefer my films to be earnest rather than ironic and right. distanced and cynical. So what is it about his films that I truly don't like? Would you what, like an alphabetized list? What is the distaste? <laughs> I'll make you an alphabetized list. Of the things that how I feel <laughs> about how you feel, Michael. Oh, yeah. that would be really helpful. I yeah. was asking. So if you have it in your I'll, back pocket, I'll, I'll text. I'll text you. And I, so I, I, and I kind of stopped at a certain point. I think yeah. Mommy was the last try. I, I, I just I, – that movie was trying so hard to get a rise out of me that, that it, it, hey, hey, it worked. And then I was very resentful <laughs> of it. So I think I kind of gave up after that. So we'll see if this one comes around. Maybe I'll wait for the director's cut with Jessica Chastain. Though I did see Xavier Dolan in this festival in a supporting role in the film Boy Erased, which I don't think we have to go into. No. Oh, but did anyone else see Boy Erased? Such a nice segue. I haven't seen it. Okay. It's, fair, it's fairly mediocre film. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I like Lucas Hedges very much. I think he's a really good actor. I, I enjoy... <coughs> You know, seeing that Xavier Dolan was in the frame because I thought that was interesting, quirky casting. But then um, it seemed like most of his performance was 80 yard. <laughs> Did not just seem like I'm positive. <laughs> um, and that kind of put me off a bit. Russell Crowe's really gone to seed. <laughs> and Nicole Kidman, um, as always, has her moments. Um, Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe, sorry, play the parents of this. And boy. this is and this is a real movie because I haven't heard of this. You haven't heard of Boy Erased? No. Um, you may be hearing of it at the Academy Awards coming up. Focus Features is releasing it, and there oh, will definitely be a okay. push. Uh, Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe play um, a pastor and his wife whose son um, is coming out, and they force him into conversion. Do they at least let them both be Australian or no? Absolutely not. It's directed by Joe Ledgerton, also Australian, so it's, in, it's interesting casting. What a conspiracy. Um, so it's a conversion therapy drama, and some of it is actually very raw and terrible, and some of it is just about as mainstream and 
sappy as you can imagine. So it goes back and forth, has its moments, most of them bad ones. <laughs> um, Learn something new every day. So I think we should move on from that. <laughs> Eric, what did you think of Cities of Last Things? I know you saw this too, Aliza. Oh, God. Yeah, wow. Well, well, I mean, explain this movie for those of oh, us geez. like me who don't know what it is. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll Eric, say that I'll say that I I went explain. into oh boy, I'll say that I went to see it um, because you know you're looking one of the great things about Toronto is there's just so many films and so many films you don't know anything about or anything about the filmmakers, and so you have like just a paragraph to go on in terms of a synopsis, and you have. The, whatever section it was programmed in and like this is the platform section and it seems like there are some better films that wind up in the platform like Her Smell is a platform and it certainly didn't sound like every other film uh, sort of reverse chronology film genre elements uh, I, I will say that so just what it is is a, a film uh, set uh, starts in the future and makes its way Back to the you're getting a sort of an older man main character, and then we progressively go further back, basically in sequences that explain things that we've already seen in terms of what has happened and what happened with the devolution of relationships. Back to the point of that main character being a teenage boy. Lisa, what else? Anything guidelines well, we should say? The thing that attracted me to the film was. Um, Sci-fi um, is is not a genre that has really existed in Chinese culture. Right. Right. Uh, same with you know the noir uh, genre. That's you know it's recently been absorbed into the collective uh, imagination of Chinese filmmaking because they realize that um, by encoding films narratives in um, these generic elements they're able to get away with more in a way right um, right and and, and Wong Kar Wai is sort of a touchstone right in terms of genre in terms I of mean Chinese 2046 film. was really one of the um, trailblazers in terms of sci-fi mm-hmm. um, cinema and I thought that actually because it's sort of a trifurcated um, structure the first, uh, section with the sci-fi elements actually had me for a while. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that the set design was pretty subtle mm-hmm. and slight adjustments were made to things that we see in China every day to make it look like it could be sometime indefinitely into the future. And I thought there was something very clever about that. And I was hoping the film would follow up with more about what that would mean. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, I don't think it quite got there. Not at all, yeah. Yeah. No, because I hear all that. And I think I was with it for a while, too. Um, But then it stops being sci-fi at all, and it becomes something that's contemporary Mm -hmm. and past tense. Um, and I guess what, where that first, the, the, the futuristic element ended, I was not very happy with at all. And then exactly what it did with that going backwards, I found kind of like downright offensive and odious because what it winds up being is, um, uh, you know, it, it winds up having this character do some horrible things. Right. To women. And you're like, please tell me this is going somewhere that will warrant this kind of activity. But instead what you get is a man treating people horribly, women horribly. And then we get to know exactly what's happened to him that makes him treat women and particularly these women horribly, which is 
sort of unforgivable, I think, it's in this so point. It's so one like, note. You can't, you can't tell that story anymore. You mm-hmm. can't um, give us the reasons for why somebody's a murderous, horrible man, and that's going to make us feel something for him. Like, mm-hmm. it's not okay. Like, whatever, whatever we saw that uh, we had to absorb in terms of his experiences, no amount of um, backstory is going to make me forgive what I already saw. So there's a and and there's like a in terms of the the genre tropes. There's a, there's it's all mother whore, and every character right. is a mother or a whore, and there's just no getting around it. There's no developing that. There's no yeah. making that specific to time or place. You know, um, it's just those archetypes, which at this point are again sort of an unforgivable archetype to peddle out there. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what's interesting about these new emergences of genre cinema in in Chinese filmmaking is that, you know, they become allegorical of something right. that's socialist, realist, and more urgent mm-hmm. and more about what we're experiencing now in ways that we can't necessarily express explicitly. And this was not expressing anything explicitly that hadn't already been done I felt like it was made by a fifteen-year-old boy. Many, many times. Like it was real. It was like um, just all concocted by a fifteen-year-old boy. I'm I'm so sad to say this. I I totally agree with you. Um, because in the beginning, I was with it for the first half an hour. I thought it's it was clever filmmaking, and unfortunately, there was just no spirit to the filmmaking. Which it's funny because we used in our last podcast we talked about the crossing, yeah. Which I think is exactly what you were talking about using these genre elements, but actually getting at something specific and real and of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is like, the inverse of that. Doesn't exist in the real world at right. all. Right. Well, uh, to end on positive notes, plural, <laughs> let's just go around quickly, and if everyone could mention one more thing they'd like to recommend or talk about that they saw this week at TIFF, um, starting with Eliza. Just nonfiction. That's it. <laughs> like literally to see that uh, once a week, every week. That's it. Adam? Um, I missed the High Life podcast, but High Life's pretty good, the Claire Denis film. Um, also, there's this Argentine film called Rojo by Benjamin Nashiat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but I saw that in the run-up to TIFF, and I was put onto it by a fellow CinemaScope critic, Steve McFarlane, who who'd reviewed his previous film and, and liked it. And it's pretty darn good. It's a really well-organized period thriller. Like we don't lack for dirty war allegories in terms of Argentine cinema. But this one really filters it through genre in a satisfying way. The guy is clearly a fan of the Coen brothers. In fact, one of my goals for this week is to try and meet this guy and say, what is your favorite Coen brothers movie? Because I I expect you have several. And um, it's just got this really like clever, laconic, fatalistic tone to it. You kind of know exactly what's going to happen. It's not a film of surprises, but just brought off very, very nicely. And it's in the platform competition. And to me, it is the sort of film that should be in the platform Mm -hmm. competition. I haven't seen Her Smell. I have no opinion on it. Um, And I'm not saying that that doesn't belong. But one of the things Tiff has had over the years is these films that are somewhat incongruous within these competitions, a film like Jackie or a film like High Rise or a film like Her Smell that sort of seemed to exist at this higher level of profile and budget and resource. So a film like Rojo, which is like by a young Argentine filmmaker, doesn't have a lot of sort of cachet coming into the festival. It being in a competition and I hope vying for some of the awards because it's by far the best platform film I've seen, um, that would be a nice elevation using the platform uh, metaphorically to elevate something. So um, hopefully that's the case because that's a, that's a really nice film. Um, and yeah, I want to say that I also was a big fan of that. Oh, um, good. I, I really enjoyed Rojo. It it has a 
like a first act that sort of functions as its own short film. Yeah. And it's so wonderfully directed and acted, and you always kind of want to keep returning to that moment. But the film does that. It, it kind of lets that scene you, hang over the rest of the film. Did you feel Cohen's in it too, or am I just I see, Now that you mention it, I see it. I wasn't thinking of it at the time, but there is like a contraption quality. There's oh, also, yeah. also the sense of like people making really bad decisions and therefore kind of you know unraveling the rest And of just their the lives. prologue, a short film into the title font is just Raising Arizona. It is actually the font. This is what right. I'm going to ask him about. So, That's true. I, I was thinking, what does that look like? You're right. It's Raising Arizona. Raising Adam, Arizona. Adam's just turning even criticism of other films to promotion for his Coen Brothers book. It's really amazing. <laughs> yes. But you just actually did it again. You helped him promote it by saying that. Well, because I want Adam to Thanks, Eric. live a long, happy life. <laughs> living um, off the fat of the And then on his Coen deathbed be like, Xavier Delam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when is that coffee table book coming out? Oh, oh God. Eric. <laughs> Well, I will say a film I just saw today, another platform section oh. film called The River by uh, filmmaker Amir Baghazan, a young filmmaker um, from Kazakhstan. And this is a film – it's the sort of film that very much is announcing itself as I'm an important new filmmaker on the international stage. He's also the DP. It's – extraordinarily well filmed and uniquely filmed while also, you know, suggesting other sort of films from the former Soviet Union, Color of Pomegranates, uh, sort of sifts in at moments, uh, Tarkovsky sifts in, um, and there's something very archetypal about it. It's allegorical. Basically, it's about a family of five boys who are um, being uh, uh, led to raise themselves and to, to work to so it's a film about uh, five young boys who are living in the middle of nowhere, a windswept, windswept desert, basically, and their father is uh, guiding them to. Uh, there's a father and mother that are around, but whether and how around they are is 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 never really determined. It seems like it's almost like peanuts, like these kids are raising themselves, but there are like there's a, there's a every once in a while an adult comes in, and it's basically it's somewhat subtly bifurcated in the other half of the film is them um, completely like living as if it was a different millennia. Halfway through the film, somebody from the current moment comes into the frame literally and challenges and changes everything in terms of uh, them being aware of uh, the modern world and then being aware of a different way of living. It leads to a lot of conflict. So there's something very you know schematic and archetypal, allegorical about it, but it actually and 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 I was intrigued by all that. It all like made me feel like, well, this is a great calling card for a filmmaker who's going to make some interesting things. But it actually got somewhere towards the end that I was not expecting. And I think that there's some real depth um, to this. And it feels like um, it feels like these somewhat expected tropes are being marshaled toward what. Going back to what Lisa was saying, going uh, marshaled toward a very specific context. Um, this actual this land, this place, um, uh, this. Um, you know, uh, this particular moment for a people in a, in a landscape um, grappling with some of, of these very questions, like how to uh, remain uh, true to ourselves and our traditions while also changing. So that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's quite a film, and I was very happy to have uh, encountered it here at TIFF. Great. And I, I just wanted to give one last shout out to the first half hour of Gaspar Noe's climax. Um, no. Because I, I, despise his films. Everyone kept saying, no, give this one a try. You, this one's interesting. This one's different because, I, you know, it's, it's, it's his first musical. It's, it's, a, it's a movie. It's a queer film. You'll, and, it, and the first half hour teases at all those things and the first dance number is actually 
fairly spectacular. The choreography, the way the camera's working, it's incredibly subtle camera work for him. He sometimes just puts it down and lets the dancers do their thing. Um, and then it turns into a really stupid Gaspar Noe film. So <laughs> but he's getting don't clo- see it. But he's getting closer. <laughs> to what, making something watchable? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually liked the first half hour, half hour so much that I probably will watch it again. So that is saying something about that. Um, thank you all for being here. This has been a great festival. Yeah. With great friends and great fun and great movies. (laughs) (laughs) See you next year. See you next year. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>